Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tikowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, tech, and highly regulated industry. I'm your host, Dara Tarkowski. Today, we are talking about innovation and the legal industry. Now, normally when I start that sentence, everyone gets real excited about the innovation part, then gets real glassy-eyed when I start talking about the law. But there are some of us out there who get pretty jazzed about legal technology and the opportunity to innovate in what has traditionally been, and in many ways still is, one of the world's most boring, uptight, and snoozeworthy professions. Our guest today is one of a handful of innovators and educators trying to address that perception and explore new models head on. Uh, And he's doing that by training our future talent early. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Professor Daniel Linna with Northwestern University School of Law and author of the blog, Legal Tech Lever. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Glad to be here. Thank you, Dara. Um, All right. So first and foremost, um, there's been a lot of hype, especially in recent years, about innovation in the law, legal tech, um, disrupting disrupting the industry, disrupting processes, new delivery models. Um, to the point where, at least in my view, so much of it has gotten really blurred together. Um, you know, people, I think, who are not kind of in the depths of it, uh, like you and I are, don't understand the difference between, you know, e-discovery of 10 years ago and legal tech as it exists today. Uh, and hopefully today, I think with your assistance, I'd like to break some of that down and then really talk about some of the exciting stuff that you and Northwestern Law are tackling. Sounds great. Um, all right. So, I mean, maybe like, let's start there. Um, tell us about what is going on at Northwestern Law. Sure. Well, I joined Northwestern as a visiting professor of law last year, and now I have a full-time appointment in the law school and in the engineering school, and I'm the director of law and technology initiatives. So we're expanding upon some of the things that Northwestern has been doing for a while in this space, uh, teaching classes, around uh, problems at the intersection of law, business, technology is the way we like to frame it. So it's more than just technology, but thinking about the skills, the people skills, the process skills, the data skills, the technology skills that this next generation of lawyers really need. And so one of the things uh, where, and and I had the opportunity actually to work with your firm, with Actuate and and with with you and Martin and Jeff on, uh, we have an innovation lab class at Northwestern and this is something that's been taught for a couple of years. When I joined, we, we took a little bit of a different approach in that we continued something I'd done at Michigan State. And that's actually when I first started working with you all uh, was on projects there where we looked to external law firms to bring us problems and to get our students working on those problems. And what that looks like here at Northwestern, the Innovation Lab, is, is I'm working closely with Chris Hammond, who runs the Masters in AI program. And we have a class uh, that has computer science students master of science and law students and law students in the class. We had 34 students and we worked on problems from external law firms such as Actuate Law, Mayor Brown, Reed Smith, 
We worked on a public interest project and also a problem from our, our Bloom Legal Clinic. So bringing in these challenges and looking at how do we bring together this diverse uh, multidisciplinary team to work on improving the delivery of legal services. So that's a component of it. So, so would you say that you think lawyers of today generally are, are missing that technology proficiency? I think the easy answer is yes. Uh, and, and, but, you know, and I think it's, it's broader than that. It's broader than that in that we as lawyers don't get a lot of training in, in technology, business, uh, just thinking about, you look at other industries, it, it's not just a failure to adopt technology, but this idea that the delivery of legal services looks a lot more, looks very similar to really to what it did 140 years ago. And, and all these other industries have gone through quality movements and thought about how to improve processes and have become data-driven and use basic technology and now are thinking about using artificial intelligence. And yes, in some areas in law, there's been this evolution of service delivery, but for the most part, we see lawyers still as the, as the artists, the craftsperson, and, and they deliver these solutions uh, you know, very, we're special snowflakes as lawyers, and we haven't gone through kind of this movement of thinking about, well, wait, what are some standards, best practice? It's, it's in a way a kind of what I, I would say a scientific or engineering approach to delivering services and thinking about where we can not just be more efficient, but improve the quality, improve outcomes, and thinking about making things more repeatable so we can get better outcomes for our clients. Uh, and, and augment that then with the bespoke skills that lawyers like to bring this to problems. Do you think that a part of that may be the result of, you know, we've all heard the phrase that the wheels of justice move very slowly. Uh, do you think in part that's because lawyers by nature are very risk averse and unless we know for sure that, you know, a judge or a regulator isn't going to slap us on the wrist for doing something out of the box that we just like to hang back? Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that, that that's a piece of it. I mean, law is a very tradition-bound profession, and we, we look to precedents. So we look back at Supreme Court cases to kind of define on how we're going to handle a litigation matter, for example. And just to be clear, mostly what I'm talking about is civil law and thinking about civil access to justice, access to legal services, for example. But I think even in the criminal justice system, we need to be thinking more about how can we use technology to create a better justice system to result in, in fairer outcomes, less discrimination in justice systems and things like that. So I think there's lawyers sometimes view the world like we're the ones who push, should need to put the brakes on everything and slow things down. But I'd like us to start thinking more proactively. How do we use technology to deliver better legal services so it can serve this vast unmet need? 80% of the impoverished lack access, half the middle class, even companies, startups, small businesses, even big companies say, we're not getting what we need for our lawyers. So how do we improve legal services delivery there. But then also, how do we as lawyers understand technology better so we can think about the law and regulation of technology to really move society faster, to help foster innovation, but do it responsibly so we, we create the society we want to have? So, you know, cynics would say that large law firms and some of the uh, practitioners who maybe have the best resources available to them to really invest and, and develop new delivery models are loath to do so because they're just worried about, you know, efficiency um, and the billable hour don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, do you think that part of the issue may center around just the way big law is built from, from an economics perspective? 
without a doubt. I mean, billable hour is, is, is one of the problems here. Now, I don't think we need to banish the billable hour. There are certain types of projects for which it's best, but it, it results in a bit of a misalignment of incentives. There's no doubt about that. And I think that also highlights really the opportunity is, is we as lawyers also in this space, we tend to see it as, oh, there's a fixed pie and the pie is shrinking when, when we lose a piece of work to automation or outsourcing or what have you. We should look at it like other industries do where it's like you automate lower value tasks so you can provide higher level value. And some of these leading law firms that think, oh, well, we'll always be here, we'll always be doing this bespoke service. Um, well, not all of the leading law firms are approaching it that way. Many of them are looking for ways to really take uh, data analytics, technology, process improvement, project management, all these disciplines, and they're thinking, how do we become 10 times more profitable than what we are? Because we deliver 10 times the value to our clients, right? And so that's the main message I really want to come across is, sure, the safe play might be like, oh, we can, you know, we can have be profitable next year and maybe the year after, but let's think a little bit longer term and think about, you know, you look at the leading law firms, uh, you're a huge law firm if you have 1% of the legal market, right? Why doesn't one of those firms take 10% of the market? And some of the firms are thinking that way. So it's interesting. I, you know, I think we litigators in particular remember the days where, you know, those of us who practiced in big law and spent hours upon hours clicking through documents, uh, remember kind of our supervisor's reaction to the introduction of technology-assisted review and all of the uh, technology that made getting through piles and piles of discovery that much faster. And, you know, I recall specifically, uh, you know, my practice group chairs and having palpitations about, well, oh my goodness, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours for the, for the practice group are generated off of these very large document review projects. How in the world are we going to make up that revenue uh, if all of it all of a sudden disappears? So those types of changes, I think, are always met with uh, pause, to put it politely, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, you got to keep the engine running. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious to see if you see a large shift happening in terms of like the economics of the law firms that have kind of invested themselves in, in Northwestern's innovation lab and, or is it, or is it like other innovation lab, you know, like in financial services, for example, where we have one and we're doing innovation in air quotes because so we can say that we're doing it, but at the end of the day, our business model is our business model. Yeah, I think more and more firms are thinking about, if you think about the law firm structure, there is actually a fair amount of flexibility. And uh, we tend to think of law firms as monoliths, but that's not the way they actually operate. You, you look at the practice groups and even within a practice group, you can have different partners that really kind of have their own separate kind of business. And I think we're seeing more and more forward thinking lawyers who are seeing the opportunities here. And I mean, I was an equity partner at a law firm before I came to law school. And what I was thinking is, what's my opportunity to build a unique business inside of this law firm? What's my value prop? And how can I use data analytics and technology to go to a client? Part of this goes back to the billable hour thing we were talking about before, right? And really knowing your customer. What do your customers want? And the funny thing is, is we think that it's just a race to the bottom on price, but many clients, it's not so much about price, it's for some of them, it might be about certainty. If they knew on the front end that this matter is going to cost a quarter of a million dollars and that's all it's gonna cost, they might be thrilled to sign up for that deal. It might result in greater profit for the law firm and actually have a business model where the law firm can do the things that really add great value in litigating a matter, for example. So I think it's, it's just a little bit of a lack of, a, of imagination 
um, in certain organizations, although are, there are some rules and regulations, of course, that, that hinder innovation, but I think that uh, there, there, are, there are people out there that are really thinking seriously about how to innovate and, and do it in a way that um, can generate greater profit and really bring, you know, create the right incentive structure to, to leverage these tools. So you mentioned that you were an equity partner at a law firm uh, before you kind of made the transition uh, to academia. What prompted the switch? I was teaching as an adjunct professor. I was teaching at the University of Michigan. I was teaching negotiation. And a lot of that was like about really getting to know your client from a lawyer perspective. So it was nice to be able to bring in data analytics and thinking about some of these things. Like why is the, this client going to hire you as the lawyer? And, and what do you need to understand to negotiate a deal for them? And then I started teaching as an adjunct at Michigan State. And when you're a lawyer, right, you're constantly trying to do things to signal to clients, right, that, that law is a credence good. And that's why people put so much stock in where you went to law school and the law firm with which you practice, because it's hard to measure the value. That's changing. It's another area where we need to work on improving that. But at the time, I just saw, I was so excited. I had a background in technology. I saw all these opportunities. I, the opportunity to join Michigan State came up to, to be there full time and run uh, and ended up running their, their innovation and technology program, Legal R&D. And so I just kind of thought, wait, this will be, uh, I hadn't been an equity partner for that long. I had some business, but it wasn't like I had a multi-million dollar book of business yet. I thought, hey, I'm going to go in internal to Michigan State. I like teaching. I like working with students. want to build an outside-in looking program, and maybe I'll go back into practice at a law firm or into a legal department or something like that. That hasn't happened yet. I've been uh, just really <laughs> enjoying the opportunity to you know, work with law firms and legal departments, legal aid organizations, courts, right? There's so many opportunities in this space. Well, did Northwestern just steal you away? Or are you still working with both, both institutions? No, I'm still, I'm here full-time working with, with North, Northwestern here in Chicago. Well, I am a little bit biased. Go Cats. That is, <laughs> Northwestern is my alma mater. So, you know, uh -huh. I, in my yeah. personal opinion, I don't think you could be at a better place. Uh, uh, it's great to be here in Chicago, too. I mean, there's, there's a lot happening here. And you, we mentioned before this law and technology initiative that we're doing in connection with the Innovation Lab. We're doing monthly meetings, building community, bringing people together. And we're going to have our first event tomorrow. I mean, we had 150 people RSVP. So there's, there's a ton of interest in this space. And we're, we're trying to be a catalyst to uh, take a deeper dive in these areas and really help lawyers figure out how they can, uh, you know, really advance, help advance the field in this, in, in, in this space. Yeah, I've, I've certainly seen um, the boom uh, in Chicago, not only in the legal tech space, but in fintech and reg tech. Um, I think we have so much talent in the city mm -hmm. that, uh, mm -hmm. that, I think the whole, the business community is finally kind of rallying around it. Um, and I'm very excited to see what, what's to come. Um, to, Chicago has always been a financial hub for the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm excited to see it, you know, rival Boston and, and Austin, Texas to become a tech hub as well. Yeah, it's exciting. So uh, let's, I'd like to talk about this subject from, from a slightly different angle because up until now, we've been talking about what service providers can be thinking about, should be thinking about different ways to deliver services, but those services have to be delivered to clients who want them and who are interested in buying them. Um, 
So there was a really interesting piece in the American Lawyer that came out last week titled Why GCs Aren't Buying What Legal Tech is Selling and Why It Matters for Firms. Um, and I thought there was some very interesting perspective in terms of, you know, we can develop all of the most interesting, innovative solutions, leveraging AI, leveraging new processes and models. But what will that mean if the if our consumers aren't buying into what we're doing, and how and how do we communicate that message most effectively uh, to them? Uh, I can tell you as a as a practitioner, I can't tell you how many RFPs I've filled out that have very robust sections on you know talk to me about alternative billing, talk to me about your innovation. And then at the end of the day, even if we win the RFP, they're like, okay, but can you just give us a discount on your rates? So they want to know about all the interesting stuff that you're doing. And maybe that's kind of a gatekeeping function. But then at the end of the day, they just want to be billed by the hour regardless. Um, and, you know, from, a, from an innovative firm's perspective, oh. you're like, hey, well, you just, you, I just told you about all this interesting stuff we're doing. You want, you want the boring thing? Why don't you want any of the interesting stuff? Why, you, why do you keep mm -hmm. choosing the boring thing? Uh, so I'm very interested kind of on your perspective on the, the consumer of our legal innovation products. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because I've heard the same kind of thing about alternative fees and I'll hear lawyers complain that, well, I, I presented it. Everyone says the clients want AFAs, but I presented this AFA and the clients won't do it. And I think, I don't really think in other industries, we blame the buyer when the buyer's not buying what we're selling. And so I think, I mean, of course, there's a little bit to this without a doubt. But uh, to me, this all comes back to in the legal industry, I think we really need to understand our clients better. And we typically, uh, you know, when you're a lawyer handling a matter, you do the stuff to get the job done, to solve the problem. When the matter's over, the client pays a bill, you typically don't spend a lot of time talking to them, understanding how it went, how you can get better the next time. So I think, you know, it's like you can complain that GCs don't understand your legal tech, but why should they understand your legal tech? Some care about that and they want to understand it and they're engaged at that level, but the vast majority of them are consumers like other consumers. They have problems. They expect you to understand their problem, understand their business, understand their industry, and deliver solutions to their problems. Many of them, they don't care if it's built on AI or if it's a better um, improved process or, or project management, what the tools maybe are there. And so I think that to me is where there's a real need for us to get much more disciplined about what it means to be, to go through, to use innovation frameworks. People talk about design thinking or lean thinking, um, you know, really actually living that and applying that and really spending the time. There's, there's a saying in lean thinking, like go to Gemba, go where the work is done. And how much time do lawyers actually spend really learning about the problems that their clients have that need to be solved? There's, there's a tremendous deficit there. And that to me is one of the core problems. Well, I could certainly answer that question for myself and, you know, and my partners here, but that certainly I don't yeah. think would be an answer uh, for the general legal practitioner mm -hmm. population. Uh, curious on your thoughts, um, John Albright, uh, Chief Legal Officer at Hub International, has a quote in this article uh, where he really concludes that the legal tech industry is heavily fragmented and that there are too many vendors selling solutions to really discrete issues that doesn't necessarily take a holistic view of an organization's problems. So you can, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? You solve this little piece yeah. over here, but you're not thinking about how it either is gonna impact or address the other piece over on the other side. Um, do, you, do, you, do you share that opinion? 
yeah, you're sure. I think a lot of um, a lot of what we're doing in tech with technology is kind of looking at what we've always done and asking how we can do it faster and their point solutions. And in some areas, there's a value proposition for doing that. But I don't think we have very many people who are thinking really big picture. Uh, matter of fact, recently I was talking with George Seidel and, and Helena Hoppio, who wrote a book a decade ago about proactive law and thinking about how to prevent problems and how having an understanding of law can help promote business interests, right? Help guide like where the business should be. And so like if you just even thought about transactions and you're thinking more about the whole value stream, like the finding targets, negotiating the deal, uh, documenting the deal, thinking about integration on the back end, all these different things where you could think about the broader value stream rather than just kind of automating certain steps in the process. And you know, so some of this is normal, I think, in my industries where you have a lot of different competitors trying to solve different problems. But it also, to me, it presents a huge opportunity for uh, lawyers at law firms who are innovating to, instead of just thinking about how do we speed up this one little piece of the process, thinking more from a big picture perspective, thinking again, and not just about technology, but how can data analytics, even small data, improve legal services delivery, and then process improvement project management. Yeah, so we, I agree with what John is, is saying and think there are tremendous opportunities for lawyers and, and, and innovators, entrepreneurs, to think bigger picture. So let's, let's suspend reality for a moment and pretend that every law firm is on board um, mm -hmm. And everyone is thinking about creative, disruptive, innovative solutions for how to get their clients what they need. And our clients are actually ready to consume that. Do you think that the legal and regulatory framework in the U.S. is actually ready for the idea where we can, quote unquote, rely on the robot lawyers? Well, I think the short answer is, I guess I would say yes, actually, because we've had some form of what I would call robot lawyers for a while, and that is technology tools that different companies have built. I mean, LegalZoom famously has been using tech. Now, some of this is maybe just document assembly, maybe say it's not that uh, a fancy of technology solutions. I think legal aid organizations are building technology tools to help people solve problems. So it's, it's happening right now, and, and, and we found ways to uh, the people who are building those tools are building them responsibly. And uh, I would submit that there's no evidence that consumers are being harmed by that. One of the other problems we have though, and I'm pushed on this frequently because I talk about these technology tools and, and people will ask me, well, how do we know these technology tools are actually solving the problems? Good question. How do we know that humans are solving these problems when human lawyers are doing the work? I mean, we have anecdotes that suggest that they are, of course, but we need to be more data-driven, gather data, uh, about the quality of solutions provided by technology tools uh, and so-called robot lawyers, things like that. The regulatory landscape, though, is changing. California came out with a big report, right? And then they're going to be uh, submitting proposals for changing the way lawyers are regulated, which would open up the marketplace for uh, technology companies, open up the marketplace for lawyers to, to partner with other allied professionals to deliver legal services. Pro, you know, the prohibitions on fee splitting would go away. Utah is doing things in this space. Arizona, Washington State has opened up the market a little. So regulation I, is changing. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in any one of the uh, chair peoples of any of the AMLAW 100 law firms when those uh, when those announcements were being made about opening up markets, I, I would have I would have paid a ridiculous amount of money to eavesdrop on the conversations that were happening yeah. in those in those C suites. 
when all of that's happening. Um, because, you know, I think in uh, overseas, I think the big four have been right. rivaling law firms uh, in terms of deploying legal services for for some years now. Uh, and I think the proposition of that to a lot of uh, practitioners in this country is pretty scary um, because they have been doing things, frankly, much more efficiently than us lawyers have for a long time. That's, you know, that's kind of my take on it. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I think that there's, I agree. And, and of course, it's different here in the U.S. where in most other jurisdictions, as you alluded to, these, the big four have actual law firms, right? I mean, they're right. practicing yeah. law out and out. I do think, though, that we've been lulled into a false sense of security, if you're thinking in a, from a protectionist perspective here in the U.S., because you think, oh, well, the big four can't practice law. But you know what? The big four and alternative legal services providers are finding more and more things that they can do that isn't the practice of law and help deliver solutions to our clients. And so, if anything, one could look at this and say, you know what, these rules that kind of protected the industry for a while, all they're doing is, is holding the industry back and putting, a, putting law firms in a more vulnerable position. The rules need to change and you need to understand that you're competing with the big four and a lot of other entrants now, and it's gonna only increase. So what's, what's always, always was fascinating to me, especially back in the days when I, I worked at two AMLA 100 law firms and you know watched this happen, I always thought, um, the consultants in so many ways acted as gatekeepers, especially for large institutional clients, because one or more of them, you know, were providing advisory services, giving them opinions on technologies, doing the gap analyses on, you know, where their policies and procedures were lacking. And they were doing that work anyway. And then our clients were relying on them to recommend solutions for these problems. Um, whether they were solutions that they provided, whether it, bring, it was bringing in another vendor or even bringing in another law firm. Um, so from my perspective, I was like, why aren't we working with them? Why isn't the mm -hmm. legal industry working more closely um, with those consulting firms? Because it, whether you realize it or not, they've been gatekeeping a lot of that, a lot of that work just by virtue of the other advisory services that they provide. Um, so it'll be interesting to see um, how that shifts um, when California, you know, if they, if California has been on the, been on the cutting edge very, very recently with regards to lots of, you know, different sorts of regulations. Um, don't get me started on privacy. I could talk about it for three hours. Um, uh, but I think it'll be fascinating to see how uh, the U.S. legal market responds, particularly AMLAW 100, 200. I think smaller firms are better positioned probably to react to it. Um, but are those the kind of things that you guys are going to be tackling during the next innovation lab? I'm very excited to hear what you guys have on the horizon for next spring. Yeah, well, we are lining up projects for the innovation lab right now for the next semester. And, uh, you know, just on the regulation point, we're also for our next monthly meeting at Northwestern Law School on October 3rd, we're going to have a panel where we have some folks who are talking about regulatory changes, because of course this isn't new. In the UK, they have, a, they have a lot of alternative business structures for about a decade. Australia, Singapore has forms of this. So it, it's top of mind for people and you hear opinions all over the board as far as the big four are gonna eat the big law firm's lunch or versus some people think that they can't compete. But I mean, how, what do you do to start preparing for that? And I don't want people to forget that one of the other reasons for opening up the marketplace here is to serve the unmet demand from individuals, from consumers, the 80% of the impoverished, the half the middle class that lack access. There are big opportunities here for startup companies, for others to serve that, that market uh, as well. 
And so in the innovation lab, yeah, we're, we're starting to, we really want to build a consortium of law firms that are interested in solving these problems. There are big problems to be solved that aren't really about a competitive advantage. They're about talking about developing best standards and best practices and how to use data, how to address problems about like protecting confidentiality and things like that. Understanding where to, how technology is going to evolve and how law firms and lawyers can make best use of it how it can be used in legal aid and, and in courts, things like that, that benefit the legal industry and society generally. So we want to bring in partners from the outside to work on that. And then we want to work on projects individually in the innovation lab uh, with our teams of, of computer science, master of science of law and law students working on those challenges, other projects that we want to bring in. And we're going to do academic conferences in connection with this. We're doing academic research as well. Uh, so we, we're, we're really excited, especially that we've had such great interest from external partners who are really driving this, right? Figuring out what are your needs in the real world and how can we help support them? Well, I am personally very excited to see what the Northwestern Innovation Lab uh, has up its sleeve for the next semester. We're excited to be a part of it um, and excited to see how, you know, you turn this into, you know, the Sedona Conference of Legal Innovation. I think that's where you guys are headed. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. 